Welcome to the Denver Community Church Teaching Podcast. Whether you attend our 10 a.m. gathering on Sundays here in Denver, are just checking us out, or listen every week from far away, our hope is that by engaging with Scripture, together we can explore and participate in the life of Jesus so that we can be a healing presence in our world. As you listen to this teaching, allow it to begin a conversation between you and God, you and the Bible, and you and your community. If you have any questions about DCC or this teaching, you can email us at info at denverchurch.org. To get connected or find out more about what's going on in and around our community, you can visit our website at denverchurch.org or download our app by searching Denver Community Church in the App Store. And if you want to financially support the healing work we are doing as we invest in our community while setting aside 20% of every dollar given to support our partners locally and around the globe, you can text the words Denver Church to 77977. That's Denver Church to 77977. Know that spaces like ours can only exist through the radical generosity of those who call DCC home. Thank you for being here. Let's get to the teaching. Hey, everybody. (laughs) If we don't know each other, my name is Becca Stewart, and I serve as a pastor of spiritual formation here at DCC. And every once in a while, I teach like today. But before we jump into that, I actually want to make a quick plug. Um, On Saturday morning, March 4th, I am going to be hosting, facilitating a time here at DCC at the building um, that we're referring to as a Soul Care Saturday. So it's going to be a time of guided prayer and reflection, a little bit more contemplative space. And I've invited some DCC friends who are gifted guides and facilitators to help me so that um, we'll have some space in that time also for some smaller kind of process groups, sharing time. So if that interests you, I'd love to have you consider it. Um, Actually, the the focus of it or kind of the theme of it, I'm calling Lady Lent. Um, And if you don't know, the Lenten season is about to begin, and we're going to be doing some exploring of feminine imagery of God, particularly God as mother, and thinking about Lent through the lens of waiting in the womb of God. Waiting in the womb of God. Lent can be kind of a dark season, but what if we're waiting and expectant for what wants to be birthed in us? So if that interests you, it's for everybody. It's not just for women. Um, There is a registration link for that. We just want to know how many people to expect. And you can find that on the homepage of denverchurch.org, or you can ask about it in the participate area after after the service. Okay, let's jump into the teaching. Um, I actually, several months ago, requested to teach today because I knew where we would be in the Gospel of Luke. If you don't know, we've been working our way through Luke. And this morning, we're in Luke chapter 8, verses 40 through 40, or through 56, where we find the story of the dying girl and the bleeding woman. And if you know me at all, or you've ever heard me talk about something that I'm really passionate about, then you probably know how important and profound this text has been in my own female spiritual journey. And how I believe that there is, in this text, actually an archetype or a pattern that serves as invitation for all women. So having said that, I'm going to make some disclaimers. Um, I'm unapologetically speaking to a very specific audience today. Although not a small one, it's an audience that traditionally, historically, has not been uniquely spoken to in the context of church. 
For centuries, women have brilliantly practiced the art of intellectual flexibility as we navigate primarily male language, imagery, structure, and honestly, just humans, right? Who it is that we see as representatives of God and church. I'm a spiritual formation pastor, so I think a lot about the spiritual journey, right? What it is that we are embarking on as we move towards becoming most fully human, most fully who God created us to be. And I can tell you that much has been said of the spiritual journey for men. I've often been left wanting when it comes to finding myself in stories and models that were made by men, for men, where men are central, set against the backdrop of an apparently male God, As Mary Daly said, if God is male, then male is God. It is truly something to be a woman in a man's world. We're typically given two options, to play a supporting role in the male hero's journey, or to attempt to plug our our female self into a male spiritual journey. And I'm honestly just not a fan of either. Women are too often limited to dreaming within these confines. But what if being a woman in God's world, God who is neither male nor female and yet contains the fullness of both masculine and feminine. I believe that today's text offers such a model, or at least it has for me. And so as we jump into the text and the teaching today, I want to say this. If you do not identify as a female, I want to invite you to practice some intellectual flexibility. Although this teaching may not be specifically geared toward you, it has everything to do with you. And I believe that its implications matter deeply for your own health and wholeness as we together seek to worship the one true God and embark on journeys worthy of that worship. So if you want, we're going to open up to Luke chapter 8. I'm going to be reading verses 40 through 56. And As I read today, I'm going to insert a few extra details as we go, and here's why. Uh, This story is actually found in all three of the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And scholars have long recognized that the accounts of this story, both here in Luke and in Matthew, actually derive from the Gospel of Mark. And Mark just gives a few more details that I think are interesting and that I want you to hear. So I'll kind of insert them as we go along. This is what it says. Now when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. Mark tells us that she had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors, spending all that she had, and instead of getting better, she grew worse. And it also tells us, Mark also tells us, that she had heard about Jesus, and she thought, if I could just touch his clothes, I will be healed. So verse 44, she came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Mark says that she could feel in her body that she was freed from her suffering. Who touched me, Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Then he said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. 
While Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, he said. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, don't be afraid, just believe and she will be healed. When he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him except Peter, John, and James, and the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She's not dead, but asleep. They laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But he took her by the hand and said, my child, get up. And Mark, it tells us specifically that Jesus said to her, Talitha kum, which means in Aramaic, little girl, I say to you, rise up, stand up. Her spirit returned, and at once she stood up. Then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. Her parents were astonished, but he ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. Now, in each of these three Gospels, these two stories are found together in what's known as an intercalation or a sandwich narrative. The the writer would use this literary tool to weave two seemingly separate stories together, allowing them to enter into a vivid dialogue with one another. And maybe you already began to notice this as we were reading, but there are several overlapping elements in these stories. Two females in seemingly hopeless situations, uh, perhaps not so obvious, the reality that both were considered ceremonially unclean, and Jesus in making contact with them would have then also been considered unclean. The number 12, the age of the dying girl and the number of years this woman had been bleeding. The falling at the feet of Jesus, both by a man with power and a woman without. Both of these nameless females are referred to as daughter. The use of touch, the bleeding woman touches Jesus to be healed, and Jesus touches or takes the hand of the dying girl to heal her. And the role of faith and healing. Jesus says to the girl's father, don't be afraid, just believe. And to the bleeding woman, your faith has healed you. Now, these two stories are more than just two incidents that happen alongside each other. They're meant to be explored together, to derive meaning from one another. And what we have here is so rich and so layered and is way more than we're going to cover in our time together. But my hope today is to simply point you to the deep well that is here that you can go and delve into. I personally began to interact with this story in a season when my own body began to give me, or to invite me into some deep diving. I began to bleed irregularly. Turns out listening to our body can be a way of listening to God. I visited my doctor, assuming it was nothing, and she suggested an ultrasound to check things out. And when my normally very upbeat doctor began to work very, very hard to control her facial expression, I got worried. She suggested a biopsy and invited me to come back when my husband could join me. Left only to my imagination and Google, those weeks of waiting had me a bit anxious. And when we don't know where our stories are headed, there can be something therapeutic about finding ourselves in a story of another. I had been working my way through the Gospel of Mark. I was intentionally slow and attentive, and instead of studying the stories, I was inviting them to study me. When a story studies you, it looks at you, it listens to you, it observes your body language and pays attention to what stirs up in your spirit and where in your body energy seems to permeate. The story acts like a true friend, one who earnestly seeks to see and understand you and simply mirrors back what they see. 
When encountered like this, a story has a, a way of helping you reframe, kind of open up and dig into your deepest places. And when I came across the bleeding woman, my body told me to stay for a while. It's like I invited the woman to coffee and I asked that she tell me her story over and over. I soaked in each and every word, noticing when a particular detail stood out or something stirred up in me. And over several weeks, months, and now years, this woman and the little girl whose story bookends her own would become two of my closest companions. They've been my guides in my own female spiritual journey and an empowered journey. I've come to affectionately call this the story within a story which feels appropriate since it describes much of women's lives. We're too often living a culturally appropriate life while these unclaimed and forgotten parts of ourselves are just waiting to wake up, stand up, and come out of hiding. And this is exactly as I see it, what Jesus invites these women and us into. So what do I mean by unclaimed and forgotten parts of ourselves? Unfortunately, too often, in both culture and especially in communities of faith, the promotion of self-sacrifice occurs for women before there's really even a self to give away. As Christian writer Carol Leckie Hess argues, many of our teachings have traditionally encouraged women to not just give of themselves, but to give away themselves, meaning their responsible and assertive identities, their God-given authority and agency. And so from very early on, we learn the art of self-abnegation, the act of rejecting or renouncing the self. For about a decade now, I've been walking women through something called the life plan process. Um, if you didn't know, I work here part-time, and then I also um, have a business with my husband, and life plan is part of that. Essentially, for two eight-hour days, I guide these clients one-on-one -on -one through a series of exercises that helps them listen to their lives, their stories, their preferences, their unique design, in order to help them really name and take ownership of who God created them to be. And when you spend this many hours with this many women in this kind of context, you begin to see some common themes. Generally speaking, for women who have grown up in or now find themselves in Christian culture, the theme of self-abnegation is overwhelmingly present. Patterns of playing small, holding back, waiting for permission, being overly apologetic, choosing pleasantries over truth-telling, avoiding and suppressing emotions like anger, feelings of invisibility, and imposter syndrome galore. Maybe you can relate. Now, with this reality of self-abnegation in mind, one of the things that has always been hard for me as I consider male spiritual journey models is the assumption that at some point, a necessary part of this spiritual life will include surrender and dissent, right? An intentional moving down. Are you familiar with this idea? It typically goes something like this. In the first half of life, we are ascending, we're building who we are. And then there comes a point in life, typically in midlife, or maybe earlier if, if some kind of crisis pushes you there, but where you begin to reckon with who you think you are, right? We have to come face to face with our limitations and then surrender to a higher power, to God, and begin a journey of descent. And it's not that there hasn't been anything for me to glean in this wisdom, but it's always rubbed me a bit. Like someone is giving me a really nice sweater, 
that's two sizes too small. And I've managed to get it on, but let's be honest, it just doesn't totally fit. I mean, is the journey further and deeper for me as a woman really that of descent? Isn't that what I've been doing this whole time? It wasn't until I came across the work of Carol Lakey Hess that I really began to have some light bulbs turn on and began to clarify what my dissonance was really about. So I've created this image, don't get overwhelmed. I'm trying to sum up what I'm about to tell you. So I'm about to explain this, so don't try to figure it out just yet. But let me say this. I just wanna name that what I'm about to explain here could feel a bit binary maybe a little oversimplified, and there's probably some truth to that. Um, I recognize that really there's so many layers and nuance here as we think about race, ethnicity, sexual identity, okay? So I want to say that. I'm actually taking a group of women through this material over nine months, and one of the women in the group who is not white was very quick to point out that um, this, as I'm about to explain it at the top, is specifically speaking to white patriarchy. So I just want to name that that's true. But what I am asking you for today, again, is intellectual flexibility. And to hear me say what I'm trying to see and name here is something that is typically not seen and named on behalf of women. Okay, so in her book, Caretakers of Our Common House, uh, Carol Lakey Hess points out that because our theology over time has been mostly male-written and informed, that it has overemphasized the sin of pride. Okay, I'm gonna pause because some of you are not gonna be able to track with me until I acknowledge that I just used the word sin. Has anybody noticed that one of the biggest sins in the post-evangelical context is using the word sin? Right, okay, so this might also trigger something, but you might have heard um, in the past that the word sin really is an old archery term that just means miss the mark. So if we're trying to understand sin in the context of this spiritual journey, which we have already said is the journey of becoming most fully human or most fully who God created us to be, then sin is whatever keeps us from moving into our full humanity. So again, Hess says, in our theology over time, we have overemphasized the need to, to contend with pride, assuming it is the primary sin that all must contend with, when in fact... For a woman, the sin that must be contended with is that of self-abnegation. Again, the act of rejecting or renouncing the self. And just for the record, Hess is not trying to say that women will never struggle with pride or that men will never struggle with self-rejection. But I read all of this for the first time and it occurred to me that as a man enters the world, what he is generally told is, you must be more than you actually are. And as a woman enters into the world, what she generally is told is you must be less than you actually are. And both of these messages are harmful because both resist our full humanity. Or as Steve Cuss describes it, I like his language, our being exactly human-sized. The male and female spiritual journeys have the same ultimate goal, but how we will get there and what is necessary in moving into our full humanity will be different. For a woman, the invitation is not down, it's up. So I want to go back to the story in Luke 8 and consider how does this invitation show up here in the text. I'm going to tell you the story again, and this time I want to invite you to find yourself in this story. You are the dying girl. You are the bleeding woman. 
And I want you to pay attention to what might stir up and stand out. What sticks for you? Listen for the faint whisper of your memory reminding you of parts of yourself left unclaimed and forgotten. And you can take that down. Thanks, Nick. One day, as a large crowd gathered around Jesus, one of the synagogue leaders came and pleaded with him to come and heal his dying daughter. Jesus agreed and went with him, and while on his way, a ton of people followed and pressed around him, and a woman was there who had been bleeding for 12 years. Now, let's be clear. What we're talking about here is menstrual bleeding. This woman was going on 12 years of a nonstop period. She had sought the help of doctors, spending all that she had, but unfortunately in the broken system that she existed in, one that did not and ultimately could not serve her, instead of getting better, she grew worse. Now, this was a complicated situation to be in, especially for a woman in biblical times for multiple reasons. Perhaps the most difficult part would have been living with the label and stigma that came with menstrual bleeding. She was considered unclean. According to the Jewish law, anything or anyone she would touch would also be deemed unclean for the rest of the day. That woman should not have been in that crowd, pressing up against and touching so many. There was a clearly defined place and path for her, and she was expected to stick to it. And showing up here, she was breaking all the cultural and religious norms. But she had heard about Jesus and had thought, maybe if I could just touch him, I would be healed. This woman trusted her own intuition having the audacity to believe that maybe there was another way, a different way than what she had been handed to seek her healing. And so she makes her way through this crushing crowd, spreading her label of unclean to each body that she rubbed up against until she was close enough to reach out her hand and touch Jesus's cloak. The very thing that she was forbidden to do to touch became her healing mechanism. Immediately, her bleeding stopped, and she could feel in her body that she was free from her suffering. Now, if this isn't astounding enough, what Mark tells us next is downright disturbing. Here's what it says in Mark chapter 5, verse 30. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? Apparently, it wasn't a conscious choice for him to heal her. He turns looking for who it is that took his power. Does that blow anybody else's mind? When he realizes who she is and hears her tell the whole truth, she, Jesus looks at the woman and rather than condemning her for such a brazen move, he blesses and affirms her by saying, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. This woman boldly makes the move to come out of hiding, disrupting the system and the status quo, taking Jesus's power without permission. While Jesus is speaking words of blessing and affirmation over this woman, the news comes that the little girl, remember the one who he was on the way to help, apparently she has died. Overhearing this, Jesus tells the girl's father, don't be afraid, just believe, and they continue on their way. And when they arrive at the house, they're met by people crying and wailing loudly. They had begun to mourn the death of this little girl. Jesus sees this happening, and in what could feel like a stunning lack of compassion, he says, why all this commotion and wailing? Stop. The girl's not dead, but asleep. To which the gospel writers tell us the people laughed at. 
Which makes sense because it feels like a really ridiculous thing to say, but Jesus says it. The girl is not dead, but asleep. After Jesus, after this, Jesus goes into the room where the girl is, and he takes her by her hand, and he says to her, girl, stand up. Immediately, she stands up, and she begins walking around, and everybody's astonished. When we consider this narrative sandwich, right, the meat, the middle part about the bleeding woman, for me, is mind-blowing and disturbing, and the bread, the part about the dying girl, is just sort of bizarre, But what happens when we allow these two stories to engage in vivid dialogue? How might they fit together? What if the story of these two nameless females is really a story for all women? An invitation from Jesus to walk our uniquely female path, an invitation to wake up, stand up, and come out of hiding. It's fascinating to me that actual studies have revealed that something phenomenal happens to girls around adolescence, around 12 years old. Referring to this research, Sumant Kidd describes it this way. They undergo a gradual change in which they lose their feisty spirit, courage, and willingness to speak out, qualities they had known in girlhood. Around this time, their truth becomes silenced, held back, They become afraid of conflict with males because they know on some level that males hold the power. They become, perhaps forever, good little girls, settling into the cliches and limits imposed on their gender. So sleep begins. For some, it can extend throughout life as unconsciousness deepens and numbness sets in. These women lose all memory of the problem they once saw. For other women, the sleep is more fitful. They sometimes glimpse the truth, but it never seems to rouse them fully. These women tend to fall back asleep when the waking state becomes threatening. Or Clarissa Pinkola Estes in her book, Women Who Run With Wolves, describes it this way. When a woman is exhorted to be compliant, cooperative, and quiet, to not make upset or go against the old guard, she is pressed into living a most unnatural life, a life that is self-binding, without innovation. The worldwide issue for women is that under such conditions, they are not only silenced, they are put to sleep. Their concerns, their viewpoints, their own truths vaporized. She's not dead, but asleep. Is it possible that our ability as adult women to act with the authority and agency of the bleeding woman Practicing an audacious faith that doesn't wait for permission and has the courage to disrupt the status quo. Is it possible that that is tied up in the little girl in each of us being invited to wake up and stand up? If you're anything like me, this invitation is both invigorating and terrifying. How will the world respond when we truly, fully show up? I can tell you from experience, it's not always pleasant. This is a journey that will be accompanied by fear and uncertainty. And I was recently processing my own anxiety around this journey with my husband, and he shared something with me from James Hollis, who's a Jungian depth psychologist. And this is what I want to leave you with today as we end our time together. This is what he says. Anxiety will be our constant companion if we risk the next stage of our journey and depression our companion if we don't. Not to consciously choose a path guarantees that our psyche will choose for us, and depression or illness of one form or another will result. 
Yet to move into unfamiliar territory activates anxiety as our constant comrade. Clearly, psychological or spiritual development always requires a greater capacity in us for the toleration of anxiety and ambiguity. The capacity to accept this troubled state, abide it, and commit to life is the moral measure of our maturity. Faced with such a choice, choose anxiety and ambiguity, for they are developmental always, while depression is regressive. Anxiety is an elixir and depression a sedative. The former keeps us on the edge of our life and the latter in the sleep of childhood. To not risk, to not allow ourselves to be accompanied by the anxiety that will inevitably come in this journey will keep us in the sleep of childhood. And so, ladies, hear Jesus say to you, Talitha Kum, little girl, wake up, stand up, and come out of hiding. Let's pray. Jesus, thanks for seeing me. Thanks for seeing us. Thanks for being for us. Thanks for the invitation into full humanity, whatever that is, for all the people here, God. Would we be open to your invitation to the way you are always wooing us into who you created us to be? Would we be faithful on that journey and would we have courage? We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.